This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In Scripture, God reveals Himself to be holy. In His vision of the Lord, the prophet Isaiah saw seraphim with six wings to fly, to cover their faces, and to cover their feet. Why? Because Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, is holy, holy, holy. He is glorious, radiant, and resplendent in His holiness. Just as soon as we say this and see it in Scripture, that the Lord is holy, pure, and glorious, we realize that we are not On seeing this, Isaiah said of himself, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In Leviticus 11.44, the Lord said, Be holy, for I am holy. And again in verse 45, You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. The very same command is quoted in the New Covenant in 1 Peter 1.15, The God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament, and His demand for holiness is no less in the new than under the old. When we contemplate God in His moral purity, and then when we, like Isaiah, contemplate ourselves in our sin, guilt, and moral corruption, we might despair, but believers should not. Because in the very same places where the Lord reveals His holiness and His demand that we be holy, He also reveals the good news. In Leviticus 11.45, He reminds us, I am Yahweh, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. He did not save us from Pharaoh and ultimately from sin and death through Christ because we are holy, but because He is gracious and merciful in Christ. He did, however, deliver and justify us by His unmerited favor alone, through faith resting in Christ alone, in order that He might make us, consequently, holy. We see that in Isaiah 6. As soon as the prophet confesses his sin, one of the seraphim flew to him, took a burning coal from the altar, and touched Isaiah's mouth, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is is atoned. So, Christ sanctifies those whom he has made righteous, those to whom his righteousness has been imputed by God's free favor through faith alone. The scriptures describe both in narrative and in teaching the pattern of putting to death the old man and being made alive in the new. In season five of Office Hours, we're considering new life in the shadow of death, the biblical teaching of holiness, of sanctification, of being conformed to Christ, of dying to sin, and living to Christ by His grace. Joining us today to get us started is Dr. David Vendrunen, the Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics. He's author of a number of books, including Living in God's Two Kingdoms. This volume and others are available through... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, David, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Good to be here. So we're starting a brand new season, and we're talking about the doctrine of sanctification, and it's your job to get us oriented, first of all, by helping us to define sanctification. And in the introduction, I talked a little bit about what Scripture says in Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, and then how that's quoted in 1 Peter 1, 16, be holy because God is holy. 
and then Isaiah 6, where God is revealed as holy, holy, holy. So let's define our terms. When we say holy, what does Scripture mean? Well, holy is, in some ways, a, it's a very rich and even complicated term. It represents the idea that God is set apart from his creation, and set apart especially as a moral being who is pure and undefiled, who cannot be corrupted by anything in his creation that has fallen. And so God's holiness is an awesome thing. You mentioned Isaiah 6. When Isaiah catches this glimpse of God and his holiness, he's, he's undone. He confesses his sin and knows that he can't stand before a holy God unless God has mercy on him. Burkhoff, in his manual, you know, there are the three Burkhoffs. For the listener, there's the big one that's sort of scary sometimes, and then there's a middle one, and then there's the little blue one. So in the middle one, the manual, he says that holy, the words for holy, the Hebrew and Greek words for holy, refer to primarily to separation and secondarily to moral transformation. But A.A. Hodge, back in the 19th century says, at least relative to the Greek term in the New Testament and in the Septuagint, the Old Testament, it refers to being made physically clean and then morally. How do we sort out the relations between being cut off or separate and being transformed? I think it may be helpful to see the connection between these ideas in the light of the fact this is a fallen creation. I think it might be different the way we looked at this if it was an unfallen creation and we were never affected by sin. But in the creation that is fallen, the thing that is most evidently different about us from God is the fact that we are sinners. Of course, even an unfallen creation, we would not be all-powerful like God or all-knowing like God, but we would be, in an unfallen world, we would be holy, we would be more morally pure as God is. And so in a fallen creation, God's revelation of himself as holy in the sense of being pure, of being without sin, without being tempted by sin, is something that radically separates us from God. And so as God is revealing himself as morally pure, he is shown to be someone who is different from us. And then as God sets apart certain things in this world to be holy— that involves a moral purifying of those things. And as those things are morally purified, they become set apart from this broader sinful world. And it's true, too, that even in creation before the fall, some things are set apart. It's very interesting that the Sabbath is set apart as holy even before there's any human sin in the world, so that it's possible to be set apart without sin. The contrast is even greater with sin. Yeah, I think that's true. And this brings up an issue that uh, you may want to talk about later, in that even though this world was created good, and human beings were morally upright without sin in the original creation, the Garden of Eden was not their ultimate destination. Human beings were created for life in the age to come. And that Sabbath day, even in the original creation, was a sort of sign of what was yet to come. And so even in comparison with that age to come, the first creation was something different, and though not bad in any sense, it was not yet complete. I think the holiness of that seventh-day rest was a way to point ahead to that even greater manifestation of God in the age to come. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
What are some key biblical texts, then, as we think about what Scripture says about sanctification? Well, I think you're right to start with the idea of God's holiness and to think about those texts like Isaiah 6 that portray God as the Holy One. But then you also mentioned Leviticus and 1 Peter that talk about God calling us to be holy as he is holy. And this gets into the idea of the image of God. God made us as his image bearers, and therefore we are called to reflect who he is and to act as he acts. And then I think we get into more technical discussions of sanctification when we turn to chapters like Romans 6 and 7, where Paul explains where the idea of sanctification, that is, the idea of God making us holy as he is holy, how that fits into God's broader plan of salvation. That might be something we talk about a little bit later as well. But you also see, in so many other places of Scripture, may talk about it in a little less technical way than Paul does, but if you would look at a book like 1 John, which talks about love and calls us to love God and love our neighbor, here we're seeing sanctification really in in practice, not so much a technical theology of sanctification as a description and as a call to the sanctified life. When theologians do their work, if they're doing their work properly, they're starting with Scripture, and then they're engaging the Christian tradition, and they try to pull together a synthetic account of biblical teaching in being faithful to Scripture, synthesizing it all, and then, you know, as I say, engaging with the past, listening to the Church as she has worked through these issues. So how do theologians use the term sanctification? Particularly, I'm thinking about Reformed theologians, and then we'll come back in a minute and ask how the various traditions have talked about sanctification. In the Reformed tradition, theologians refer to sanctification as one of the blessings of the broader doctrine or the broader reality of salvation. And so sanctification means, in Reformed theology, God making us holy as a subjective, inward manner. And that's to be distinguished especially from justification. So when we refer to justification, we refer not to God making us subjectively holy, and since holy on the inside, but we refer to God declaring us righteous in his sight because of what Christ has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. And so sanctification then is seen as a blessing that accompanies justification, and in fact is a blessing given to the justified, not anything that contributes to our right standing before God, but as a gift that God also gives to those who are justified by faith in Christ. Sometimes, Dave, Reformed theologians have distinguished between definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. What do those distinctions mean, and how should we think about that? Well, that was a distinction that we especially associate with John Murray fairly late in his ministry. He wrote a couple articles on definitive sanctification. Basically, when Reformed theologians historically refer to sanctification, they're referring to what is sometimes now called progressive sanctification, and that's the idea that sanctification is a process that goes on for the entirety of the Christian life in this world, that God does not make us 
perfectly holy right at the outset of our Christian life. The Christian life is a long struggle against sin, and God cleanses us from the lust of the flesh, and he renews in us right hearts, but it's something that lasts for the entire life and is not ever complete in this life. The idea of definitive sanctification gets at some sort of definitive momentary act on God's part at the outset of the Christian life, in which he sets his people apart from wickedness and makes them the sanctified, makes them a holy people in some way that marks them out, sets them apart from this world. Obviously, there are real divisions in the history of the Christian church and among the various traditions about what it means to be holy and what it means to be sanctified. Help us understand how the various traditions talk about sanctification and holiness. It might be helpful to focus on a couple of key issues, not that these are the only ones, but just to try to break it down. seems to me that one important debate among different Christian communities is the relationship of justification and sanctification. In other words, where does sanctification fit in the broader scheme of God saving blessings to us? And I think that the other issue that may be helpful to focus on is who actually sanctifies? Is it God who sanctifies, or do we sanctify ourselves, or is it some kind of combination of uh, some kind of joint effort? And so if we look at the first of those issues first, here's where we see the big difference between Roman Catholicism and the Reformation. So, of course, Rome talks about sanctification, believes that Christians are to become holy, to become morally purified, but they see sanctification as part of that process by which one becomes justified. In other words, justification, at least something along the lines that we would understand it, really comes after sanctification. And so it is as God makes us morally pure by his grace, by participating in the sacraments, that we become accepted by God, and ultimately on the last day, finally make it through the final judgment. Now, the Reformation came along and said, no, we can't make justification the result of sanctification, to kind of simplify Rome in that way. But justification is a free gift of God. It is an act that God does to the ungodly, that's Romans uh, 4, and God then sanctifies those whom he has justified. Sanctification doesn't contribute anything to that justification, but those that God has justified through the rest of their lives by his Spirit, he is conforming to the image of his Son. So there is a very large difference between Rome and the Reformation. Now, on that other issue that I mentioned, in other words, who is the sanctifier? Here we can find some differences among different Protestant communities. In the Reformed tradition, we say that God is the one who sanctifies. And we're just following Scripture, in fact, when we say that. And what we mean by that is that this is wholly a work of God. Just as justification is wholly a work of God, so sanctification is wholly a work of God. Only God can change sinful hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, to use the language of Ezekiel. Now, that doesn't mean that we are not in some way active in our sanctification, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but the Reformed idea that God is the only sanctifier then is different from what we would expect to find in a typical Arminian kind of theology. Now, of course, Arminians would say that we're only sanctified as God is gracious to us and God blesses us, but sanctification is really more of a collaborative effort. There's something of a synergistic effort there. God gives us grace, and without that grace, we wouldn't be able to be sanctified, but we need to do our part. We need to cooperate with that grace, and as God does his work and we do our work, 
that is sanctification. Well, let's go to this question of cooperation. Louis Burkhoff says, quoting here, God and not man is the author of sanctification. That does not mean, however, that man is actively passive in the process. He can and should cooperate by a diligent use of the means which God has placed at his disposal, end quote. What do you think about that? How should we think about the truth that it is God who sanctifies and yet we are involved? I like that quote. I think that's very helpful, although it does beg further questions. And I think what Burkhoff is trying to capture there is the richness of biblical description of sanctification. Scripture is clear that God is the sanctifier. And yet, Scripture is also clear that we are to strive after holiness, that we are to resist the devil, to resist the lust of the flesh. And the way I like to describe it is that while God is the only one who can change our sinful hard hearts, God only does it in the midst of our striving against sin. He does it not as we are just kind of sitting around waiting for something to happen, but he sanctifies us as we are putting ourselves under the means of grace, as we are hearing the word preached, as we are meditating on Scripture, as we are receiving the sacraments, and as we are striving to grow, as we are diligent in prayer, as we are striving to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. And I think what's important to remember is that the very striving itself after holiness is itself evidence of God's sanctifying work within us. Unbelievers do not strive after holiness. Not true holiness. Unbelievers will strive to make their lives better through self-help methods and that sort of thing, and they will feel guilty about doing bad things. But there's no true love or desire for holiness on the part of unbelievers. Part of the gift of sanctification is that we are seeking the things of God, and we are putting ourselves under God's Word. And as we do that, God furthers our sanctification. God is the author of it, but he's the author of sanctification in a people who are actively pursuing what God commands. You're called to holy living, but how to grow in holiness? Come to Westminster Seminary, California's Transforming Grace Conference, January 17 and 18, 2014, to discover what the Bible says about growing in holiness and the Christian life. Join Mike Horton, W. Robert Godfrey, and others to learn how the same grace that saves you also transforms you. Go to wscal.edu slash conference 2014. wscal.edu slash conference 2014. Space is limited register today. Preaching is so important because it's foolish according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the heart hearts and minds of God's people. And so the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Sometimes it's been presented as if God does His part and we do our part. God 
justifies and then we sanctify. Clearly, you're not suggesting that. But some people have indicated a kind of discomfort with the formula that Burkhoff gave us, that we are actively involved in our sanctification. Help us understand how we can talk about our active involvement without turning sanctification into a kind of works. Well, I think there are a number of dimensions that are helpful to remember there. I mean, one is to constantly keep in mind, first, that it is only the justified who are sanctified. And that's something that is not always appreciated, even in Reformed circles, I think, as it ought to be. That sanctification is not just some sort of unconnected appendage to justification. Justification is a forensic, judicial act of God. It changes our status before God's throne of justice. But we have to remember that in our act of justification, as we are made right before God, that entails our being transferred from citizenship under the domain of Satan into Christ's everlasting heavenly kingdom. And as those who are justified and therefore heirs of everlasting life, we receive the gift of the Spirit and we live as those who are citizens of heaven. And so one thing I think it's helpful to remember is that as we strive after holiness, we're doing so only as those who, by God's grace alone, have been, we might say, given the resources to even make that conceivable. The resources, in other words, of the Holy Spirit and the heavenly citizenship. So I think that's one thing. And I think another thing to remember is that, as I was saying, that even the beginnings of our striving after holiness are themselves a gift of God's grace. I can never take pride in the fact that I prayed this morning. I went to church on Sunday. I held my tongue when I really wanted to say something to that person who did something to me. You know, we rejoice that we resisted temptation, that we pursued something good, but the very fact that I have begun to strive after holiness, that I am putting myself under the means of grace, that is evidence that God is at work in me, and there's no way that can turn into pride. That can't turn into vanity, and that can't be any kind of works righteousness. I think it's those sorts of things that we need to keep constantly before us, and if we do, I think it would be very helpful for us to avoid that danger, which is a very real danger, very real temptation, that sanctification turns into something legalistic or a new kind of way to exalt our own works. Or a basis on which to present ourselves to God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, as always, is really helpful here and clear. Question 35, as you doubtless know, asks, what is sanctification? And the answer is, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And the divines there captured the essence of what all the Reformed writers to that point, to the 1640s, had been saying about sanctification. That's virtually identical to what the Heidelberg Catechism said in 1563. The two parts of sanctification are the putting to death of the old man and the making alive of the new. Talk about the relationship between enabling and the putting to death, in the technical language for that, and the making alive. I think it's important to remember that these two things are not not really independent, separate things. They're really two sides of the same coin. We talk in our technical theological language about mortification, and that's the idea of putting to death the old man. We recognize that we have all of these sinful desires, these lusts of the flesh, and we don't all struggle with exactly the same sinful desires, but we all struggle with some of them. 
And when I say lust of the flesh, we're not just talking about sexual lust. We're talking about that, but we're also talking about temptations of drunkenness and gluttony and fits of anger and pride and greed and envy. And we could construct a long list of these things. We see these things in us, and we recognize that God's work of sanctification is in part suppressing these. It is putting these things to death, and we are called then to be warring against them by God's grace. The other side of this coin we refer to often as vivification, this idea of being made alive. Sanctification is not just a negative thing. It's not just God is getting rid of our vices, but God is also building virtues within us. He is replacing these lusts of the flesh with the fruits of his spirit, with love and joy and peace and patience and all the rest. And it's not as if we go through stages of life where God is mortifying and then stages where God is vivifying. It's always a mutual joint process. And one thing that's nicely captured there in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, actually two things. One is, it is a lifelong process, what we referred to earlier as this progressive sanctification. But another thing is the fact that it is the whole man that is being sanctified. And what that's getting at is that just as there is not any part of us that was not made depraved by sin, that's our doctrine of total depravity, so there's not a part of us that is not being sanctified by God's Spirit. And that should be a very encouraging thing to us. We don't always see that the way we want to, but we have faith that God actually is mortifying all of our sinful desires, and He is bringing to life these new virtues in our whole man. Just because you can't see it, or you're not seeing what you'd like to see, doesn't mean that it's not happening. That's right, and I think this is often often a discouraging thing for thoughtful, honest Christians, is that we look at ourselves and we think, am I really more sanctified than I was a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago? We don't often see it. And I think sometimes it's helpful to remember that the more God sanctifies us, the more we learn to hate sin, and the more sensitive we become to sin that remains in us. And so I think to a certain extent, it's not so much that we're just as sinful as we were, except that we are, we're more attentive to the sin that remains in us. But even when we can't see it, as you were saying, it doesn't mean that God is not doing it. And God sees our hearts the way we can't see our hearts. You would think our hearts are the things that we would see most clearly in this world, but in fact, oftentimes our own heart is the thing that's most difficult for us to understand. And we ought to be encouraged by the fact that God is the one who searches hearts and minds, and he searches them in Christians, that he might sanctify them, that he might search out those hidden sins by his word and spirit, bring new life where there was decay before. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And you indicated earlier that the Christian life is a struggle. It's a lifelong struggle. The Heidelberg Catechism in question 114 asks, but can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? The answer says no, but even the holiest men while in this life, have only a small beginning of this obedience, yet so that with a sincere resolution, they begin to live not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. And then the follow-up 115 says, why will then God have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached, since no man in this life can keep them? And the answer is, first, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature and thus become the more earnest in seeking the forgiveness of sin and righteousness in Christ. Likewise, we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in the life to come. 
Help us think through, then, the relationship between the struggle of sanctification in this life, particularly as it's measured against God's law, and our failures, our confession, our renewed desire, and then finally, when it comes to consummation at the end of our life or when Christ returns, how do we balance those things or relate those things? That's a big question, and there are certainly some who hear statements like that in the Heidelberg Catechism and think, well, this is kind of discouraging— It's kind of pessimistic. It has too low a view of God's sanctification. I mean, really only small steps in this life. But I think it really does capture the way Scripture describes the Christian life. It's an honest statement. It may not be what we really want to hear. (laughs) It's a, a realistic statement. It is a realistic statement. And what did Christ tell his disciples? If you want to follow him, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow him. He tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to be those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's very interesting language. It's not so much calling us to be satisfied with righteousness so much as hungering and thirsting. This life is one of striving after it. One of the six petitions of the Lord's Prayer is prayer for protection against Satan and against his temptations. We're warned in the Scriptures. Think about 1 Peter 5, warned against Satan, who is like this lion, you know, waiting to devour us. Those aren't things that are the Lord's not giving us the impression that this is going to be easy. So we are called to recognize that it is this wonderful statement. We saw it again, just as we saw in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's not just part of us, but it's the whole man. It's not just some of the commandments, it's all the commandments that God's sanctification penetrates to all of us in all of our lives. That's very encouraging. And yet we remember that measure of holiness that God works in us now. Even the most holy person you notice, you know, think of the most holy person in your church. That person has only just begun to be what he or she is going to be on the last day. And you had asked about that, and part of our doctrine of glorification is this idea that on the last day that we are going to be made perfectly holy, that we are going to be sinless. I think the fact is, is that we can't really even imagine what that is. We can't imagine what it is not to even have an evil thought, never to even have an evil desire, let alone actually act on that desire. And yet that's the promise that is held out. I think when we think about that, that whole idea of hungering and thirsting after righteousness makes sense, is that what we're learning in this world is to get some sort of foretaste of what it's going to be, but it's only a foretaste. It's only an appetizer in comparison with that feast of holiness that we will experience on the last day. Earlier, you mentioned, David, about perfection, that we never reach perfection in this life. And yet there are traditions that do and have for a very long time, going back to Pelagius in the early 5th century, late 4th century, and more recently in the 19th and 20th centuries, there were movements in the 18th century, movements that offered to the Christian a way to perfection in this life. And sometimes it's referred to as entire sanctification. That's a seductive powerful notion into which a lot of people have bought. Why is that wrong? What does that view omit? Well, I think at a most basic level, the reason why the Reformed and most other Christian traditions have rejected that view is pretty clear statements of Scripture. That's just not the way it is. Think, for example, of 1 John 1. If anyone says he's without sin, he deceives himself. It's something we'd like to think. We'd like to think possible, but it's deceptive. Going back to the Lord's Prayer, one of the ways we're instructed to pray as our daily prayer, to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We are the kind of people who need constantly to be confessing our sins before God. And I think in a broader theological 
perspective, it gets back to what we were talking about a couple minutes ago with the idea of the Christian life being a lifelong struggle about the sanctification being only in small steps. And I think one thing that is interesting to note with regard to some of these perfectionist movements is that perfection, what is regarded as perfection, ends up being a kind of a watered-down version. It becomes things like freedom from willful sins and things like that. Now, even that's not really possible, but there are ways in which perfection is defined in ways that make it have some sort of semblance of plausibility. And a much sounder route for us is to recognize that any claims of perfection, any claims to be without sin of some sort or another, is really deceptive. It's attractive, but it's deceptive and... It is ultimately going to be discouraging for God's people to tell them that this is what they ought to experience, to tell them this is what they ought to be striving for, because if they're honest with themselves, they're going to realize that they keep falling short, that they never attain it. And that's not a recipe for a healthy Christian life. There's grace in Christian realism or honesty about God's holiness and our own lack thereof. And yet there are promises in Scripture, and perhaps this is a good way to bring this discussion to a close. There are promises in Scripture that God will bring to completion the work that he has begun in us in Christ by his Spirit. So reflect on that for us a little bit. That really is an encouraging thing, especially in light of our earlier conversation about the fact that we often, when we're honest with ourselves, we don't feel like we're making great strides in sanctification. And sometimes, not just not making great strides, but sometimes moving backwards, we seem to be struggling with the same temptations for decades, or maybe sins that we thought were put aside, they spring up again. And one of the wonderful things about that promise is that God says that He will finish His work. It's not a promise that he'll give us a little more help if we need it. It's a promise that, again, since he is the sanctifier, and since he has set his name upon us and has staked his reputation upon us, that he's going to finish that work and that he's not going to let his children fail in reaching that goal. And the ultimate goal, then, in our glorification is that perfect holiness. And despite the discouragements that come in this life, we can have faith that God is going to do what he said. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.